Hi everyone, Jim Rizzoli here, Holocaust denier, extraordinaire, and proud of it. Well, today I'm going to be interviewing E. Michael Jones, and I hope uh, we have a good discussion uh, because he has actually uh, been writing a book about the Holocaust, and that's really what I want to look into to see what he's been doing uh, with that, what, uh, what the book is about, and the information that he's presenting. So I'm sure this will be a, uh, a nice discussion. He seems like a very uh, reasonable guy. Uh, he got back to me really quick when we asked him if we could uh, interview him and talk with him. I think that's important because sometimes, you know, I get in touch with people, they never get back to you, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, not many people like him, himself, okay, like Michael Jones, uh, takes on the topic, okay, of the Holocaust and write a book about it. I mean, that's it's kind of a death knell when you do something like this, believe me, uh, because especially if you're presenting outside of the story and, and, and if you're telling people you might not agree with what's going on uh, and with the whole, how the Holocaust topic is being presented today, uh, you know, people don't want to hear the truth and it's really sad. So since he writes a lot of books, I hope it doesn't affect him, you know, in the publishing of the other books that he has written. Because one thing that Jews like to do, they like to dox you in regards to what you do. And if they know you're writing something about them, and if, if you're a well-known guy, they like to come after you, okay? And they like to say, well, here's this guy, you know, anti-Semitic, he hates Jews, or, or he's a hater, or a racist, or whatever the hell they want to say about you. And um, I think that's pretty sad, because that's the only thing they can use against you, okay? When you present truth... They can only ad hominem attack you and call you all these things, thinking that they're going to stop you. So hopefully uh, this w this won't become a problem uh, for Michael Jones. And he, I hope a lot of people look into the book, buy the book. Uh, and I hope a lot of uh, his Catholic people uh, look into the book too, because see, today a lot of uh, Catholics and Protestants, uh, no doubt Jews, they, they don't... Uh, want to really look into the Holocaust topic. They're afraid to do that. And the reason why they're afraid to look into the topic, very simple, okay? Fear of the Jews. People are in fear of the Jews. They hate to say anything that criticizes them. But it's getting harder and harder now because more more and more people are getting red-pilled about the Jews and what they do. They control everything, okay? They control every narrative that you can speak of. They control every organization that's a big organization that represents a lot of people or gives information to a lot of people. And so I find that, that it's very difficult to get the information out without getting attacked by them. And hopefully the Catholic people that are watching my videos, uh, you know, will say, well, gee, what's what's this book about, this uh, book about the Holocaust? I mean, what, you know, what could, we, he, what could he be saying that's going to expose uh, them to show what they're saying is wrong. Well, so far, Michael Jones and what I've been seeing the last, say, six months, okay, he, he uh, you know, in some of the conversations I've seen, he is not afraid to talk about the topic, okay? I, I just saw, you know, he had a, a good video he did with Bishop Williamson, and he said what he had to say about it, how he felt, and uh, some other videos he talked to other people, too, about about the Jewish problem, because there definitely is a Jewish problem here, and people have to be made well aware of that. So I think it's good. I, I, I I'd love to see more people writing like this. Um, but again, once you do, it's hard to get it published, okay, unless you have your own publisher uh, that, that's good to you, okay? Um, you know, when, you, when our books, the revisionist books, get all banned on YouTube, I mean, uh, on Amazon, and the videos get banned on YouTube. So we see there definitely is a problem there. Uh, hopefully, if he put, you know, this book comes out, hopefully it won't get banned. I hope it doesn't. But if it does, he, you know, I'm sure he can, you know, uh, sell the book himself, and we can promote the book ourselves too uh, from another source. You know, maybe maybe he'll have to just, you know, be the main guy selling his own book. I don't know how that's going to work out, especially if you're selling thousands of them. That would be quite a, a feat to get out a thousand books, you know, if people are wanting to buy them, you know what I'm saying? So I hope I hope it works out. I hope he can he can have an avenue to get the book out and, um, you know, a lot of people can see it. And people that are watching my video here now, uh, I encourage you, you know, buy the book. 
you know, see what it has to say. Uh, use it uh, as, a, as a reference book and get it out to other people. So anyway, I think that's uh, where we stand with that. And I'm pretty much just waiting to hear back. I already sent the uh, link out to him to get on the Zoom. And uh, I hope to uh, have a nice discussion with him uh, very shortly. So that's where we stand there. As you can see, folks, behind me, these are all my books. Not, not these are just a few of the books. I mean, we this, these are just the books dealing with the Holocaust topic itself. You should upstairs. My brother Joe's got three times. I mean, three or four times more of the books upstairs. Okay, I I just put <laughs> this is just one wall. Okay, he has two rooms full of books. All right, so you know how many books do I have here? I might have, I don't know, a hundred books here. You know, books, publications, pamphlets, or more than that. If I, if I have the pamphlets in, I probably have 200. But, um, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of information here. And, you know, when people say to me, oh, you don't read or you don't do this, I say, well, look, there's, there's my information. I have books next to me over here. You don't see them. Um, you know, I have my, my main books I've been using here that I show people when I talk to people about the Holocaust topic. Anyway, I have the main ones here. And of course, if you if you notice over here, right there, those are all my Holocaust handbooks. There's probably about 35, 40 of them there. My brother Joe's got the hard uh, uh, bound version upstairs. Okay, I got the soft bound, so I bought all of them. So I have them. He has them upstairs. I encourage people to get the Holocaust handbooks if you can afford them. Um, but they're good to have. But who the hell knows how long they're going to last? I really don't know. So. Uh, you know, if you want to have a really good set of books that really expose the Holocaust topic, I mean, from A to Z, okay, uh, those are the books to get. Uh, and again, there's, there's, there's a lot of books that are published by revisionists. It's just you're not going to see them. They don't want people to see them. Okay, E. Michael Jones will be coming to the conversation now, and let's get started. So uh, nice to be able to have you uh, on my show today. And uh uh, you know, it's really a pleasure. I've been I've been watching what you've been doing. I've been seeing some of the videos you've been doing with other people, and um, I mean, I I'm just really impressed, especially dealing with my topic. I don't know if you know who I am and what I do, but you know, my my basic topic I deal with is the Holocaust. Okay. And, and the Jews, uh, how they're involved with that, with that topic. So that's pretty much like ninety percent of the videos I produce, and my channel is on BitChute. And I got a I got a good following on on Bitchute. I probably have um, uh, over a million and a half views on Bitchute of my information. So it, it, you know it's out there. And I put your videos up when I get them all the time that you're doing something. Uh, I I saw your video the other day um, with B Bishop Williamson. Excellent. I thought that was great. Uh, I and I noticed mm -hmm. you um you you talked to a fellow named um, the Jewish fellow. Um, What's Charles it? Moskowitz. Yeah, I would really love to talk to him and have <laughs> have a discussion with him. I mean, you know, if you well, could. I'll forward your information to him and say he would like to. You'd like to interview him, right? Right. So if that, if that could happen, because I, you know, when I watch when I watch you talk to him, I mean, you, you do a, you do a great job. The guy really, to me, is a knucklehead. But you know, he doesn't know anything about the Holocaust. Of, you know, whatever. That's why I'm interested in you because you've just seemed like in the, in the last six months or so, uh, you seem like you've been trying, you know, trying to understand it and you're, you're getting it out there. How, how do you feel that's been working? Uh, I think it's, I think we're making progress here. Do you, <laughs> do you, do you, uh, do you want to do this on, on air rather than before we go on, are we? Are we? Being, oh, no, are we're, we, we're, 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 I'm recording it now. Don't worry about okay, it. Okay, good. Okay, good. Good. Yeah, I'll get, yeah, this, so, up. I'll get so, this up today. So uh, basically, uh, I read a novel called the uh, the appointment by a lady by the name of Folkmer, German lady. It's called Der Termin in German, uh, and it was about the whole opera. Uh, uh, novel is about this woman with her legs spread at a gynecologist office. Uh, so that the gynecologist can sew a Jewish penis onto her. Now, the, the thing is so outrageous that by the middle of it, it's it's so adulatory of the Jews. You know, I mean, yeah, I've, I know Germans talk this way, but this was so over the top. I realized that it must be satire. 
It must be a satire on the whole situation, the Jewish-German relationship right now, because everybody's so sick to death of it. And what I'm what I'm seeing here is it takes a lot of energy to repress uh, what they know was the truth about what happened. And now it's it's getting farther and farther back in the past. And so it was this basically this novel and uh, the, the the summer, what was happening during the time when the novel came out, there were huge floods. Now Germany is having a huge drought uh, and uh, the Rhine is drying up and it won't be passable with ships anymore. Back uh, about two years ago, the exact opposite was the case. They had ferocious floods, and uh, there were there were narrow valleys, uh, kind of south of Remagen, where the bridge was, where the Allies crossed into Germany, uh, and the floods just swept through these things and just ripped, you know, destroyed villages and ripped open things. And there were people claiming that there were there were bones emerging from from the ground. Uh, it struck me this is a symbol of the the repressed, the repressed in Germany coming back to life. Oh, yeah. you, you, you repressed this history. Uh, you've you've uh, been uh, there is an, another narrative that's been superimposed on your narrative. It's called the Holocaust narrative, and uh, now it's coming apart, and the repression is starting to collapse. And I think that's what the uh, that novel was about. It was about the, a satire on the extent to which Germans have to grovel uh, before their, their Jewish uh, conquerors. Uh, that, that's how I got started. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I think it's great that you, you, you're taking on the topic. I, I, I hope, because I know you're writing a book now, right? You're, right. This is what yes. I want to talk about. Today. Yes. So, is the book done or is it still being written? We're, it's close to being done. I'm collaborating. This is the okay. first time I've ever collaborated with someone. Okay. And so I'm. it's going to be a history of the Holocaust narrative. In other words, this is a story that came into being. It developed and it, it, we've reached the point where it's being used for political purposes today. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm pretty much covering the, the narrative part, the the. the the, the texts that were major parts of this narrative. So like uh, Ailey Wiesel's Night and then Yeshi Kaczynski's uh, The Painted Bird uh, and then um, so on after, after that. The, the, the whole genre of uh, Holocaust porn that grew out at this point, beginning with uh, The Pawnbroker, yeah. uh, reaching a kind of culmination with Ilza, the she-wolf of the SS, and all of the stuff that was coming out in the 1970s. And I'm trying to integrate it into the the history of the rest of what was happening in Germany at that time. Yeah. And, and one, one of the one of the crucial figures in this regard is Joseph Ratzinger, uh, who was uh, 20, 20 years old in 1947. 47 was an absolutely crucial year. The winter of 46, 47 in Germany was known as Das Hungerjahr. And that's when uh, basically the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, was controlling uh, occupied Germany and determined to starve the Germans to death. This was Semitic vengeance. Patton called it that. I think uh, Herbert Hoover called it. Herbert Hoover was upset at what was going on. Uh, but this is the, the, what uh, Ratzinger was living through as a young man. These are impressions that stay with you. So the question is, uh, did 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 Ratzinger know that that was called Das Hungerjahr? Did he know who was responsible for it? Uh, what conclusions did he draw from that? Uh, I, I think it's impossible for him not to know that. He he. Uh, so he eventually became the protege of Cardinal Frings of Cologne, who was much older than he was. Uh, at a time when Cardinal Frings was just reached the point where he was just going downhill. But in 47, Frings was a, a, a heroic figure in Germany because he stood up to the Allies. They were a conquered nation. He stood up to them. He said, uh, uh, basically, if there's a warehouse down the street and it has food and your family is hungry, you have a right to go in and take the food. They have no right to deprive you of that food. Same thing with coal. And so he became a heroic figure because he stood up to uh, to the Allies at a time when Morgenthau was trying to starve him to death. And I think it was his resistance, uh, plus a lot of other factors, including the fact that uh, the uh, 
the adults in America in the room were worried that this draconian policy is going to drive the Germans into the arms of the Soviets, into the arms of the communists. It'll become a communist country. And they didn't want that to happen. So they, they threw, got rid of the Morgenthau plan, brought in the Marshall plan. And that was uh, a new era. And we have the standard history of the Wirtschaftswunder, you know, the economic miracle that took place at that time. But that's, that's only, that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is there was ruthless social engineering going on in Germany, and it was all conducted by Jews. The Jews came back, they ran away in the 1930s, and then they came back, maybe because of their feeling that they were cowards at that time, uh, but they came back just lusting for vengeance. They were staffing the Nuremberg trial, 75% of the lawyers there were Jews, uh, and and they they became the the, the social engineers they were the ones who were in charge of social engineering. And one Jew in particular, a Jewish psychiatrist from New York City by the name of David Mordecai Levy, uh, was in charge of licenses. If you wanted to publish anything, you had to have a license. And in order to get a license, you had to lie down on the couch under Dr. Levy and basically say uh, how guilty you felt for the way the Germans treated the Jews. So this is the way they took over all of the publications, the, the illustrated magazines at this time were the cutting edge of uh, communication technology, glossy magazines uh, mm -hmm. with lots of pictures. Uh, Frings, Frings saw what was happening. So he stood up to the allies and then he stood up to the social engineers because one of the main things they were doing was smuggling pornography into the country. Uh, a lot of it was count contraband material, magazines, that type of stuff, but it was also films. And Fring stood every bit as uh, strongly against that as he did against the, uh, the attempt to starve the Germans to death. He was a hero. But the situation started to change. So at this point, uh, he Frings gets notification there's going to be a council, a Second Vatican Council. And at this point, 1959, he meets Joseph Ratzinger. And he's really impressed. This is a very bright guy. And he goes to Ratzinger and says, uh, I'd like you to come to the council as my expert, as my peritus. Now, at this point, Frings is blind. He's an old man. He's blind. And so Ratzinger, by agreeing to do this, became pretty much his eyes. Uh, uh, this is significant because you had to read documents. All of those council fathers had to read all the documents and make sure that everything they said was according to Catholic doctrine. So it was Ratzinger who was doing the reading. <coughs> and when they arrived, Cardinal Ottaviani had already come up with what he called the preliminary documents. And that was, he was the, the spiritus movens behind the council. He was the one who went to Pope John XXIII when he was made Pope and talked about how we have to do something. The church had reached a state of paralysis during the last years of Pius XII because he was he was non compus mentis, and you can't have a, 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 a t like total control. A man who has total control, but he can't. His mind is going. So we need. They had needed to make some changes, and we, they needed to co confront the threats that were confronting the church at that point. And so, on the one hand, he had communism, which everybody knew about, but on the other hand, he's talking about psychoanalysis and Hollywood. Well. What do they have in common? There's one group that controls psychoanalysis in Hollywood, and it's the Jews. So it was a veiled reference to the Jews uh, uh, as some power in America. Well, Ratzinger comes along, and I think he had this feeling that the Germans had done something wrong. Uh, I mean, everybody does something wrong. So, yeah, of course the Germans had done something wrong, but this is more than that. I think what he did, I think what happened is that he had internalized the Holocaust narrative. Mm -hmm. I think I think he believed it. Yeah. And so and so when he came, he felt that his mission was he, he, to, to basically help the church come to grips with the modern world, which meant the Holocaust narrative. That was pretty much the code word for the Holocaust narrative. And so he uh, basically using Frings as his mouthpiece, he basically got all of the preliminary documents thrown out. Uh, a whole let's let's start over from square one and let's not be negative. And he mentioned specifically, he wrote a memoir and he mentioned specifically Pius the Ninth syllabus of errors. That's too negative. It's a negative approach to the modern world. And Pius uh, Pius the Tenth 
uh, oath against modernism, which is also too negative. He wanted something. Let's see if we can approach it. Later on in 2005, right before he gave, became pope, he uh, said that uh, tried to give a, a speech about what it was like to be there at that time in Rome at the time of the council. And he said, I realize we realized that there was a, a good enlightenment. There was a bad enlightenment. Everybody knew about the French Revolution. That was bad. But there was the American enlightenment. There was the American Revolution. And that, they felt, was compatible with uh, Catholic teaching. Well, that made him very popular in certain circles, but uh, it was a stretch. Uh, it was certainly a stretch to say that. That's what he said. I think, personally, he was influenced by Time magazine the propaganda ministry for the American empire, because Harry Luce had just come out with something called the American proposition, the victors in world war two, it was accommodating the victors. They seemed reasonable. And so that's, that's what he went for. Mm -hmm. And that's what the council got. And so basically we got something called Nostra Tate. Now the Jews were trying to subvert the council. The Jews and the CIA were both trying to subvert the council. The Jews were working through Malachi Martin, who was giving big uh, 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 lucrative book contracts uh, as part of the payoff for him. Uh, and they wanted a basic statement saying that the Jews were not responsible for the death of Christ. That was their goal. They wanted that in writing in the document. And Malachi Martin was the man who was supposed to make it happen. Well, uh, 2,000 bishops are not going to come together and agree on something like that because it contradicts too many passages in Scripture. Whether you're talking about Paul, 1 Thessalonians 2, the Jews mm -hmm. are the people who killed Christ, they are enemies in the entire human race. The whole uh, beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, when Peter comes to Jerusalem and tells the Jews, points the finger at the Jews and said, you killed Christ. Uh, it's there. So they didn't approve it, but they did put, there were passages there that were, Lord, I brought this up in the, uh, the discussion with Bishop Williamson. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a passage which says the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. Well, what does that mean? First yeah. of all, they, they never defined anti-Semitism. And secondly, uh, uh, all forms, does that mean whatever the ADL says, like tomorrow, like uh, just recently, just a, a, a few, a week or so ago, a Jewish lady came out and said, uh, being anti-abortion is being anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. So that's the Jewish lady said, 140 Jewish organizations said abortion is a fundamental value. Mm -hmm. And now they're saying you're anti-Semitic if you oppose abortion. Is that compa compatible with Catholic teaching? No, absolutely not. Which is why they have to define the term. They still haven't defined the term. So right. this is a, we've got this problem up to now. Ratzinger was, I appointed, I think, to deal with this problem. And I have that I have that from uh, someone who talked to Cardinal George. Right. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I was listening to you when you were talking about that, and that kind of bothers me because now you're dealing with, you know, uh, I mean, obviously, the, the Catholic Church is against abortion, but you wouldn't think so, <laughs> okay? Uh, you, you wouldn't think so when you talk to the people, and then when you see people talk to the Jews, it seems like they agree, you know, if you're a Catholic, well, if you want to have an abortion, you can have an abortion. I, I don't think the Catholic Church or the Catholic people, I should say, have taken enough stronger stance on the issue. Well, uh, whether whether it's strong or not, they you Catholics are they're pro-life. If, if you're talking about demographics, if you're talking about political groups uh, in, uh, in America, they're pro-life and Jews are pro-abortion. It's that simple if you're talking about groups, whether uh whether they're strong in opposing it, no, still not working. Uh, whether they're strong, that's another question. But this is a fundamental fact of political life. And so when the, the, the balance on the Supreme Court changes and Ruth Bader Ginsburg leaves and Amy Coney Barrett comes on, then the law changes because that's a fundamental fact of political life in, in America. It's that simple. So that's that's the situation. The church is in a complete bind right now because it is issuing two contradictory commands. On the one hand, they're saying Jews are our friends. And on the other hand, they're saying oppose abortion. Uh, it's still so. Uh, but basically, they are two contradictory commands. How do you resolve them? Well, Catholic Jewish dialogue. Every time that happens, the church loses. 
<laughs> so this is this is the crisis. This is the crisis that is created in the Catholic Church. And the other thing, it came to the crisis, basically, that destroyed the papacy of Benedict XVI. Now, this happened, it was the Holocaust. Right. And I'm talking about the Williamson affair. You know, Bishop Williamson is set up uh, by an interview, a Swedish film team. They set him up, and they're, they, they're, t- they're taking down the cameras. Everything's over. And then the guy says, oh, by the way, what do you, how many people died in the Holocaust? Right. And Williamson says 300,000. He broke the law. He said that in Bavaria, in Germany, broke the law. And they take it, and they hold it. They didn't go right to the cops. They held it until the Pope uh, lifted the excommunication. At that point, every single newspaper in Germany says, uh, Benedict admits Holocaust denier to the church. That was the biggest crisis of papacy. He couldn't deal with it. He simply couldn't deal with it. They, they should have said, well, what, what do you mean by Holocaust denial? Right. I mean, first of all, there is no Catholic dogma on the number of people who died in World War II or how they died. That is not part of the magisterium. That's part of historical research. So that's it. Next question. They couldn't do it because they were captured. They were captives of the Holocaust narrative, and it wrecked his papacy. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if this will happen to you, but just to give you a shot, what happens, you know, I've, I've been in politics in in my area for a while, okay? And when I run for politics, you know, the first question they asked me, like I was running for state rep once, the first question they asked me, uh, do you believe in the Holocaust? It had, it had nothing to do with the politics of my, where I lived. No, you're exactly right. This is how, <laughs> this is how it's been weaponized. You cannot represent the people in your district. You have to re- represent the Holocaust narrative. Yeah. That is the narrative that trumps every narrative, every other narrative, including the narrative of representative government. Yeah, yeah. So that that's bothersome. Now, I'm concerned because now that you, you know, because you've written some great books, okay, and I, I'm I'm concerned with how this book is going to trump the other books in regards to them using it against you. See, in other words, all the other things you wrote in the past, okay, that's going to be the past, and the only thing they're going to note you for you wrote a book against the Holocaust. No, it's not. Look, I wrote the Jew, the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Believe me, that was a controversial book. The uh, the SPLC and the ADL both issued fatwas against me because I wrote the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So mm-hmm. this is, in some sense, only a, a kind of sequel to the Jewish revolutionary spirit. The other thing is, wait, wait a minute, there are a number of books on the Holocaust narrative, specifically on the Holocaust narrative. And I quote that. You mean you can't write about the narrative? Well, this it, it, someone's going to have to contest this. Right. We're going, we're going to have to contest this in the uh, public sphere because it's being it's we, 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 we it's just been used one too many times, one too many times to basically shut up anybody that they don't like. Any politician who dares to represent the people who elected him will be destroyed if he doesn't bend a knee to the Holocaust. Right. So you're you're not the only one. Cynthia McKinney tells the story. Mm-hmm. She was she was elected for in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said before she'd even taken the oath of office, she's in her office, and there is the fax machine. Turns out the IPAC pledge, where she has to pledge that she will do blah 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 and serve the state of Israel rather than the constituents who send her there. So it's right. not new. Yeah, we, it, it's got to stop. It's got to stop. Well, that, that's why that's why I'm having you on, and that's why this is going to continue on. Now, uh, are your, your books are published on Amazon or what? Uh, can you can you get them on Amazon? You have to go go to culturewars.com. That's the one place where you can get the books. Go directly there or go to fidelitypress.org. This is the latest book. It's called The Dangers of Beauty. It's a book on aesthetics. You can get this book. All my books are available at culturewars.com or fidelitypress.org. All right, but but Amazon won't p- publish them, right? I've got I got kicked off of Amazon. Okay, so that's the point. Okay, so they're not going to put your books, uh, especially not going to put this one up. And you have to you have to actually take it upon yourself to more or less promote your own books with your own website and all that, right? Right. Yes. Okay. So that's 
there you go. You know, it's just amazing because, like I said, I've, I've been dealing with this topic uh, for years, and I, I do a lot of – I mean, I, I get into really deep about the topic in regards to all the mechanics of how it didn't happen and, and all that. I don't know if you get into it that deep. Well, uh, I'm, 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 co- I'm, this, we've, I'm co-authoring the book. So I'm going to deal with the narrative part, and I'm, the other guy is a former dean of a law school, and he's going to deal with the legal angle. Uh, including the trials, like the Nuremberg trials, the Zundel trials, uh, Germar Rudolph trials, those, those trials okay. as well. All right, all right, yeah, because I've um, I've covered uh, all those in my videos. I cover all those the topics, and uh, you know because people really don't understand. You know, someone makes a statement: six million Jews died, and here's how they died: they came in, and you know, they got off the train, and you know, 1944, the Hungarians, and and they went right to the gas chamber. And I'm saying, whoa, whoa, you know, I, this <laughs> this didn't happen. Well, I mean, it did, let's put it this way, okay? My my whole thing with the Holocaust is this. Okay, you got to have two things for the Holocaust. You have to, because remember, it's the biggest genocide that ever happened on the or on the earth, right? Six million people genocided, according to them. Now that's the biggest. All right, it's not the biggest, but according to them, you have to have a murder weapon, and you got to get the bodies. You have to have the bodies. The Holocaust narrative have neither. They don't have a murder weapon, the gas chambers. Okay, and the bodies, they can't prove the bodies were killed with that murder weapon. And that's it. it I mean, if no, you no, simple, that's it. It. It, be, it began as propaganda. Yeah. So ba- basically, when you show, when Eisenhower showed up at Ordruf, uh, or when the British, be- better the British showed up at Bergen Belsen, the same thing. You see dead bodies on the ground. Well, that's a reality. There were dead bodies on the ground. Yeah. But then you, imp- that's a category of reality, but then you impose your category of the mind on it and you explain uh, how they died. Well, that, that's probably not true. Uh, but it, if you examine it as a narrative, I think you see certain things uh, begin to become clear after a while that may not be clear if you just focus on one aspect of it. So, for example, in, in uh, 1993 is when Schindler's List came out. It's a mm-hmm. crucial uh, document in the Holocaust narrative. Uh, and the the obligatory scene where the ladies have to take off their clothes and they all go into the shower. And so what comes out of the shower head? Well, hot water. Right. Well, wait a minute. That's Holocaust denial. Mm-hmm. So Spielberg is a Holocaust denier. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Well, because of the Zundel trial. Mm-hmm. Because the testimony there, after that testimony, after those trials, they could no longer maintain that it was it was gas coming out of the showerheads. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing that happened in uh, 93 was that uh, Deborah Lipstadt wrote her book about Holocaust denial. She created the term Holocaust denial because... It wasn't defensible anymore. And then once, because the narrative had become indefensible, those certain aspects of it had become indefensible. And so what she did then was to lobby, or the Jews then lobby to have it turned into a law because they couldn't defend it anymore. So this is part of what comes out. So after Spielberg, so when Spielberg shows up in Poland to do the filming of uh, Schindler's List, all these people show up and they want to tell their story. So he creates uh, the Shoah Foundation. One year later, the Shoah Foundation, and they encourage people to come forward. Well, eventually, 55,000 people came forward and told stories. And at this point, there is no attempt whatsoever to reconcile this with a historical account. In other words, nobody is going to ask you, did that really happen? So if you say, I was in Auschwitz and I was treated by Dr. Mengele, they just write it down, even though when you say you were there, he wasn't there yeah. or th- that whole type of thing. At that point, the narrative shifted away from history, like people like Raoul Hilberg, who would write histories of the thing. And it shifted toward uh, personal testimony. Mm-hmm. And there was nobody, nobody had any way of checking these personal testimonies. Right. So it immediately led to books like uh, Vilkomirsky's fragments mm-hmm. and debbie lipstadt was a flaming supporter a fanatical supporter of vilkomirsky's book and then suddenly it turns out well his name isn't even vilkomirsky it, it, it turns out he's not a jew from latvia he's he's a a, a swiss citizen a, a christian by the name of dosiker mm. 
So he made it all up. But then she, no, no, no that doesn't matter. It, well, it doesn't matter. And then finally, they had uh, 60 Minutes got involved and they exposed Dosecker in a way that was absolutely inescapable. They just nailed him to the wall. And then everybody pretended, well, that that didn't happen. Uh, we we never believed him in the first place. Yeah. Well, the, 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 point, the point here is, let, let's go back to Holocaust denial. Suppose I said at the beginning that uh, Dosecker was a liar. Well, at a certain point, that would count as Holocaust denial, wouldn't it? Yeah. Until it until it's proven false, and then suddenly, oh, oh, we're not we're going to pretend it never happened. Yeah. That's precisely the problem, and so it got worse after that. Yeah. Even I know, worse. I, I don't know if you know uh, the book, uh, a woman named uh, Misha. De, De yeah, I was just I was just going to mention her. Okay. As a, Living with the wolves. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, think about that. I love no. that book because, but the thing I'm laughing at is she, she makes it like she was a Jew, just like this other fellow. You right. Okay. She, so go ahead. You can talk about that. Go ahead. Yeah. She's a, a Catholic by the name of DeVale uh, from, uh, uh, from uh, Brussels. And uh, she felt bad because her father collaborated with the Nazis and she always felt that she'd been ostracized. So she went into a kind of psychosis where she got this, had multiple personality disorder and actually convinced herself that she was this Jewish uh, lady by the name of Defoneska. And not only that, but she traveled 900 miles across Europe in a pack of wolves <laughs> to liberate. And it was all accepted that the, the French, the French even made a film out of it. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, see, this is, that's the stuff that I, I do. I take apart when I, when I talk about this stuff because it's silly. It's just so silly and people never, you can never ever debate these people, you know, because now these people are old. And so now when you say to people, well, I'd like to talk to them about their experience, they look at it as you're attacking an old person. How dare you attack a Holocaust survivor and, and try to dismiss what they have to say? And, and you, can't, you can't make your point because they won't let you talk to them. No, no. So you can't talk to them. So this is what happened, like in Canada. Canada is COVID is wrecking the business of the truckers. Mm -hmm. They they're upset. So they have this convoy that comes to uh, Ottawa. Does Justin Trudeau sit down and talk to him because he's the pre premier? He's their representative. Their does he represent the people of Canada? No. What does he do? He calls them Nazis and drags out the Holocaust narratives. They're yeah. white supremacists and they're Nazis because and this means I don't have to listen to these people because they're bad people. Yeah. One of the one of the Jewish um, uh, representatives in Parliament, she begins her discussion by saying, "I have relatives who died in the Holocaust, and these truckers are all Nazis because Hong Kong equals Heil Hitler." <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah, you know, you know what really gets me about this whole topic? I hate to be, you know, I'm calling on the matter. I'm telling people less Jews died, and I'm the hater. I'm I'm the hater. Okay, you know, you think they would be happy to hear? that you know less jews died during this time period but they don't want to hear it they want to believe they're the victims and that you know six million of them died you can't prove it but they all died uh, i call it the poof theory whatever and i mean i'm the hater and you too you're the hater too <laughs> by talking about what really happened you know <laughs> that's what it, it gets me when when i see that all oh, racist you're racist you're a hater because you don't agree with a six right. million figure Right. I think the narrative is being expanded to the point where it's going to lose its effectiveness. Right. I think that's what's happening. I said after after uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, I said this was the beginning of the end of Jewish hegemony over American culture. Right. I think that's how it started. There was a crucial a crucial moment back then, 1967 when uh, Bernard Nathanson and Lawrence later decided that they were going to crusade for the overturning of the abortion laws in New York State. The New York Times got behind that campaign, mm -hmm. and they promoted Nathanson. And whenever they mentioned Nathanson, they never mentioned he was a Jew. But whenever they mentioned a pro-lifer, they always mentioned that he was a Catholic. Right. And so it, uh, the, the theme then was that these Catholics are trying to impose their religious views on us. Well, the re now the Jews are saying the exact opposite. Now they're saying they're identifying themselves.
but what they're re they're saying if you impose your views on if you restrict abortion you're imposing christian religious views on jews what they really mean to say is with roe versus wade the jews impose their religion on everyone mm. in the united states of america and now that's changing that's right. changing yeah but do you have you noticed though that since this has been happening that i'm noticing the jews are stepping up uh the fight against the people that speak out against the holocaust with all the laws they're making now and all, i mean i just noticed you you know you do google uh, alerts for holocaust or whatever it's just bombards you what, what they're doing about putting the holocaust out there in fact um ken burns in september i think 18th he's got a whole movie a new movie coming out on pbs about the holocaust yes so yes. they're stepping it up. Yeah, this is what I'm noticing. You know. Yeah. So why are they stepping up? Because they're losing the argument. That's right. I think that's that. Right. I think that's. Uh, so it comes down to uh, what do you believe? Do you believe that the truth is great and is going to prevail, or do you believe the truth is the opinion of the powerful? Those are the two. Those are the two options, and they identified clearly. The Jews clearly believe the truth is the opinion of the powerful. They know they're powerful. They know they control the media and they, they are claiming that it's true because they say so. Right. I hope, I hope um, your book, see, I know you have a good Catholic following and um, I, I hope your book really hits home with the Catholics because right now they're kind of going along with the flow here, uh, the Jew, the Jewish narrative, the Holocaust narrative, and they really haven't heard from somebody that they put their trust in. So I hope they, they're looking at you and saying, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. Hopefully they will look at the book and get educated on what's going on. I, I hope that's the case. Yeah, I, I think it's already happening. There was an article. The, the Jews have taken over the Atlantic Monthly. It used to be the Boston Brahmin magazine. Now the Jews control it. And there was an article just last week on how the rosary is now a a weapon. It's it's a, a weapon uh, a culture, in cultural warfare. And then he goes on and talks about these groups of Catholics. I think what's happening is that the Catholics are getting uh, more uh, militant in their stance against the culture. Yeah, I, I, I've been I've been beating this drum for forty years now, trying to explain how the culture has been working against them. And I think the message is finally is finally it's finally settling in. Not so maybe because of my efforts, but because because of what the Jews are doing. Yeah. They are they are getting so extreme in their demands. They are getting so ludicrous in their statements. They're destroying their own operation. Uh -huh, they're, yeah. they're they're overplaying their hand. Yeah. So when when the the Jewish lady says Hong Kong equals Heil Hitler, uh, I couldn't have said it better. You know, <laughs> I mean that's exactly you. You keep saying stuff like that, you will lose all credibility, and you'll create a, a reaction of people who suddenly are willing to assert their own identity against you against your your tyranny right right well i, I again i hope i hope that the people that um, once your book comes out when do you when do you think your book's going to be done to be able to be published uh probably the end of the year by the end yeah. of the year okay maybe the yeah. beginning of next year yeah yeah well i'm i think that i think it's going to be a big thing like i said uh ken burns is coming out in September with that movie on the PBS station, which again is 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 going to be taking people down the wrong rabbit hole again, and and that's fine. Well, what's it? What's he going to say? Well, he's going to is he going to say what? What's it going to be? Is it going to be Ailey Wiesel's flaming pits? <laughs> yeah. Or right. is it going to? Or is it going to be the gas chambers? No, no, that's, that's which cool. which uh, or is he going to be like uh, Spielberg, where he's going to have water? What's going to come out of the shower head in Dave in in Ken Burns' documentary? Yeah, I know. Uh, does he think he can avoid these issues? Well, they they just don't get deep into all, explaining all that. But here's one thing I I you know I put a video up maybe last week, and here's what I my research what I come to find out. I, I maybe you know this, maybe you don't. But do you know the Holocaust term really didn't start being used until late '60s and '70s. In fact. Uh, 19, 1978 is when they put the movie out. I guess it was right. show, the, the movie show. Okay, and no, I, there were two. I, there were two at that time. Okay, there was the the American miniseries was called the Holocaust. Okay, 
And then Claude's, Claude Lanzmann's movie in French was called Shoah. Okay, there you go. But here's, here's, what, here's what I'm finding out, okay? This is what I believe. I think a lot of the Holocaust survivors, they didn't know nothing, anything about what happened during that time period except their own being in a camp, a work camp or whatever. And it wasn't until the movies came out, okay, the movies from Hollywood produced about what they wanted everybody to believe what happened here. And then these Holocaust survivors, they're watching the movies, <laughs> and they're believing what they're seeing in the movie, and they're incorporating it in their life, saying now they can you know, bring some of the stuff into their lives, and they can write books, and they can be interviewed or go to the schools or whatever, telling their nonsense about the soap, people being made into soap, and their head, shrunken heads, and the lampshades. That's my opinion. You know, the, yeah. mo the movie's made it like that. No, I think, I think uh, life imitates art. Uh, and it, uh, it organizes. That's what a narrative is. It's the organization of experiences. Uh, and there are certain things that get repeated over and over again as a way of organizing experience. And then you mobilize that experience for political purposes. That's what's happened so far. So yeah. good luck, Ken. Good luck, Ken. There's a lot of water <laughs> over the dam. And, and you're going to be faced with some really tough choices here in your documentary. It's not uh, baseball. It's not baseball. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the Civil War. You're, he's dealing, obviously, I think the fact that the film is being, that is coming out now is a sign that the narrative is in trouble. No, I th I believe so, too. I think this is this is the Hail Mary pass, that they know that, you know, they got to do something, and now they got Ken Burns and some other women's involved, like three people, you know. They're involved with doing this, and they made a big deal about it and how it's so true and this and that, and I think it's gonna sh it's gonna shipwreck it all. They're gonna they're gonna really get a lot of a flack because there's a lot. Of, I notice in my travels, uh, you know, especially when I do my videos on my Bitchu channel and everybody, it, a lot of people get it. They're they're understanding what the Jews have done. They've overplayed their hand with this nonsense, and and people are just sitting back and saying, well, "What are you talking about uh, about this topic and six million Jews I, being killed?" Right. I th I think that the abortion was uh, the abortion issue, the overturning of Roe versus Wade was a key event because they panicked and they made a mistake. They should have stayed with the original plan, which is basically only name Catholics as the people who are imposing their views, but they did the exact opposite. And now they're overplaying their hand. And now the cat, I gave a talk in Cincinnati just about a week or so ago where I laid it out. I said, look, abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. The church supports, the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. If you're anti-abortion, you're anti-Semitic. Therefore, as Catholics, we have to be pro-abortion. That's, that's an inexorable chain of logic here. It doesn't make any sense, but that's the, the choice that Catholics are confronted with now. And no one's going, they're not going to go along with that. And there, one exception, Mark Shea is the only guy I know uh, he's a convert. He, I think he converted to the wrong religion. I think he should have become a Jew because he certainly <laughs> talks like one. And now, and now he's espousing that position as somehow defensible uh, from a Catholic perspective. It is not defensible. Now, so the the fun, the the consequence has to be: well, what are we going to what are we going to do about it? Something's got to give here. One of the one of those links is going to have to break. One of them. Because yeah. we can't go on this way with this never, never land pretending the Jews are our friends when they have supported every single movement of cultural subversion uh, from the time of the Vatican Council to the present. Yeah. You name it. They were involved in it. Breaking the production code with the pawnbroker, the first Holocaust mm. porn film, mm. promoting pornography, gay marriage. Mm. All of these revolutionary movements were all Jewish movements. Yeah. And the church had no response whatsoever. Yeah. Because they, they couldn't. So, you know, the classic example of this is um, Archbishop Chaput in Philadelphia. He writes an article in First Things about school prayer. He said secularizing activists uh, 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 basically overturned school prayer. What? Now, wait a minute. I grew up in Philadelphia. The, the the Supreme Court decision he's talking about is uh, is uh, uh, Abington School Board. Forget the I forget the guy's name. 
Uh, anyway, Abington School Board, Abington is a suburb right outside of Philadelphia. Now, the plaintiffs in that suit was, were the, was the AJC, the American Jewish Committee. And the lawyer who did it was Leo Pfeffer, who wrote a memoir about how he hated Catholicism and it was published in Commonweal. So why is Archbishop Chaput using a term that is totally meaningless, like secularizing activists, when uh, it's Shemp versus Abington School Board? That's the Supreme Court decision. Why? This is history here. Why are you why are you pretending that you don't know the names of the people who actually did it? This is ridiculous. And, And it's been catastrophic for the ability, the church's ability to stand up and defend the moral law. They can't, they have failed every single time in the culture wars because they could never name the people who are actually responsible for the subversion. Yeah. You know what I noticed? Another big, you mentioned a couple of good ones there, the Jew control of all these things, the slave trade, the Jews ran the slave trade and nobody talks about it at all. And I live up in Massachusetts. Okay. So I'm near Rhode Island and Rhode Island was the, one of the biggest places where Alan, Aaron Lopez, he was a Jew. He he ran the ships that run the slave trade to go to Africa and, and bring the slaves back. Right. But, no, but nobody even talks about him. The Jews never talk about them running the slave trade at all. Have you ever heard them talk about it? No. Like what, what the main uh, thing running academia now is critical race theory. And the the, func- the the fruit of critical race theory was this recent uh, announcement by the union teachers union in Minneapolis that the first people who are going to be fired are going to be white white teachers. Yeah, I saw to that. Make, up, make up make up for this. Well, who is the author of critical race theory? It's a Jew by the name of Noel Ignatiev. Mm-hmm. And how does he how does he get it across? He uses this fictitious term called white. What does that mean? What what do you mean? Was was uh, Queen Elizabeth white? Uh, wasn't there, weren't the Jesuits that she had hanged and drawn and quartered? Weren't they white too? <laughs> so why are, why are these white people beating up on each other? Yeah. The same, New York was a classic example during that riots, the riots in Harlem, in 19, I think it was 1937. Uh, it was Friarello LaGuardia portrayed as a black white conflict. No, it wasn't. It was blacks who were tired of being cheated by Jews who ran all the stores in Harlem. That's what it was. So this white business is all a way of disguising, again, the real actors in the story. Yeah, I, I would like to see I would like to see more blacks, you know, take a stand against the Jews. Well, I mean, Minister Farrakhan did write a book about uh, the Jewish participation in the slave trade. Yeah. Yeah. I there, I there's also I just saw a video called uh, the Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, which is finally getting out to the fact of what you're talking about here, because this was the 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 Spanish uh, colonies in the Americas were incredibly rich, full of gold mines and silver mines. And the British basically supported pirates. And uh, we're talking about uh, Jewish involvement in fighting against Spain because they hated Spain because Spain had expelled them from their country, the Spanish had expelled them from their country in 1492. They immediately gravitated toward England and became part of that privateer uh, armada that was basically plundering every Spanish ship that they could find, coming back, trying to come from the Caribbean back to Maine, uh, to Spain. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, this is, it's just amazing how, you know, the, I, I call it being Jew red pills, you know, really understanding what the Jews have done in all the aspects of it. I mean, right down the line and every single thing that we have to deal with in our country today, from the Federal Reserve down to social issues run by Jews. I mean, they run the whole. Just 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 take two two instances right now. Merrick Garland's attack on Donald Trump. Merrick Garland's a Jew. Mm -hmm. Merrick Garland has weaponized the Justice Department. So that it is now attacking all the, the Democrats' political opponents. Their main opponent is Donald Trump. Take the other example, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State. He's a Jew. This is one of the greatest diplomatic failures in the history of the United States. Uh, the lead up to the war, the current war in the Ukraine. All he had to do was say, uh, okay, we'll keep, we won't admit uh, Ukraine to NATO. It'll remain neutral. That would have would have prevented this entire war from happening. Did he do that? No, because the people like this have relatives who died in the Holocaust. 
and they are infallible, and you can't talk to them. The whole point of diplomacy is the ability to talk back and forth and the ability to recognize that maybe somebody, the guy on the other side, maybe he has a point. Maybe Russia had a point here about the weaponization of the Ukraine against them. But no, you can't talk to people like this. And this is why people like this should not be have hold should not hold public office. They cannot represent the people of the United States of America. All they can represent is their own narrow ethnic self-interest. Right. Do, do you do you feel that obviously the Jews uh, are overrepresented in our government in all the you know main positions of power? Well, there are ten. There are enough Jews in Biden's cabinet to create a, a minion. <laughs> yeah, but no, I just—it's just amazing. You know, when when and then and then you go out and I see these guys. They they go out and they throw pamphlets. You know, they call them white supremacists or whatever, and they throw the pamphlets out. And the pamphlet is just saying, you know, look at all the Jews that are running all these, uh, you know, and all, all these positions of power or whatever. Oh, that's anti-Semitic. <laughs> I just get I get the biggest kick out of that. When you tell when you tell people the truth about a certain group of people and what they're doing, it's it's the truth. It's not you're lying, <laughs> but you're anti-Semitic. <laughs> it's, well, it was like it was like what I said about uh, gay marriage. The, when uh, um, it appears in Tikkun magazine. Uh, when I say it, I'm anti-Semitic. But when yeah. they say it in Tikkun magazine, Jewish magazine, Amy Dean says it in Tikkun magazine. Well, that's good. They're bragging about it. Yeah. Well, how can the same statement be both good and bad, depending on who says it? That's right. It depends on how you say it. Well, this is intolerable. How how are we supposed to have any type of uh, rational discussion when these people have constant veto power over anything, no matter how true it is? Yeah, I know, um, you know, I offer all the time to have debates with Jewish people. That's why I want to talk to Charles Moskowitz. That's his name. I want I really want to have a, a nice discussion with him to just get into the deep you know, workings of right. the Holocaust. But nobody nobody ever gets back to me. You're the, you're the only one that's gotten back to me. I, I, I really appreciate that. You, you know how you did this. But nobody else, the Jews especially. I mean, they they will not have a discussion about this discussion no i mean it's disgusting maybe you you know because you got you know you have more uh, people following you i suppose maybe you might have more luck uh, than i i will i hope they i hope if people see this and, and and jews see the discussion that maybe they they will take you up uh, on this discussion there's a lot of people because i'm not really I'm, I'm a nobody can compare to what you're doing all right publishing books or writing books but they they look at it like, well, I can't dignify having a discussion with him. It's it's below my you know pay grade to talk to him about this topic. That's how they feel. Well, that's generally the way they view me. It's Charles Moskowitz is the exception to the rule. He's the only basic. I mean, I have lots of Jews that I talk to, and lots of Jews agree with me, and lots of Jews are worried about the reaction that's coming because these other people are overplaying their hand. The ADL, the SPLC, these groups, these organized Jewish groups are overplaying their hands and they're going to bring about a reaction. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying something. Uh, there is a violent reaction. People, you know, pick up guns and they shoot uh, up synagogues and stuff like that. But uh, that just plays into their hands. They, they, they love that when when Jews get killed, uh, because then they can they, they can uh, uh, use it to uh, demonize anybody who disagrees with them. Well, yeah, but I, I, the reason, the only reason, the reason I wrote the the Jewish revolutionary spirit was to basically disconnect the Jewish question from the racial question. I mean, the anti-Semitism is a racial term mm -hmm. it was created in Germany in the 1870s, and uh, it means that there's uh, uh, the Jews are determined by their biology. I don't believe anybody's biology is determinative of their behavior. Right. You know, your mind is determinative of your behavior and your mind can choose good or evil. Your DNA can't choose anything. So yeah. I wanted to separate that and bring it back to the condition where it was before 1871, which was always a religious uh, discussion. In other words, the Jews were the people who killed Christ. Yeah. And that had certain consequences. I said the Jews are the people that rejected Logos. 
Uh, and and that you, I had to use that term, you know, as like the order of the universe. And they've been a rebellion ever since for yeah. 2000 years. They've been leading one revolutionary movement after another. And the purpose is to overturn the order that God created in this world. You know, I, I would I would love to see because, you know, up, up where I live, the Catholic Church is kind of extinct. There's, the closing Catholic Church is like crazy. All right, up here. Okay, so where you live, you probably have a, a more people that go to the Catholic Church. But I would like to see, uh, you know, the, the priests, you know, who give their sermons, you know, talk to the people more about the fact that the Jews killed Christ. Why, why are you backing them up, uh, uh, you know, having anything to do with these people that killed Christ? I never could understand that, why why the Catholic Church never took a harder stand on that topic. Well, because they were intimidated. That goes back to the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. They, they, did, they did affirm it. You know, they said not all Jews at the time of Christ were responsible for his death. Well, whoever said all Jews were responsible? It was the Jewish people who were responsible for his death. Yeah. There was a group of leaders. They were called the Sanhedrin. And leaders have followers. Otherwise, they're not leaders. Right. And that group of people was united in calling for the death of Christ. Yeah. Wasn't the Blessed Mother who shouted, crucify him? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You know? But I, like, I would just like to see, you know, I never yeah. ever hear them ever talk about that. Never, ever. And I just wish. I they're wish afraid they to. Look, look, the problem is that the church is heading in the wrong direction right now. Yeah. So they, there was a Cardinal Muller from Germany was a good guy. He was a straight shooter. And Francis got rid of him because yeah. he wasn't with the program. He pointed another guy. He's got uh, Ladaria, I think his name is, a Spanish. I think he's Spanish. And he just gave a speech in which he groveled in front of the Jews and said, uh, it was reported in America. It's in America Magazine, which is basically, if you want to know who's running the church, read America Magazine. Yeah. It's the Jesuit magazine. But anyway, he said that no one who is anti-Semitic can be ordained. Well, what right. does that mean? What do you mean by that? Yeah. Is, is it anti-Semitic to say the Jews killed Christ? Well, that means St. Paul was an anti-Semite. Right. Well, that you're, you're attacking your fundamental document here. This is the scriptures. You're at war with the scriptures. This is not, this cannot last. This right. cannot last. But they these are the people who are in power now in the church right now. Yeah. So what what do you look, what do you look uh, for the church? What's going to happen? What, what do you think with the Catholic Church as time goes on? Yeah. Uh, I guarantee you. I will say this with one hundred percent certainty that Pope Francis is going to die. Okay, he's going to die, and at that point there will be another conclave. And all of the people, even the, the liberals who gave him a chance, I'm talking, talking to people who are in Rome now, they're all saying, we're going to go back. The pendulum's going to swing in the opposite direction. So just as Bergoglio is in many ways the opposite of Ratzinger, there's a guy now, some canon law lawyer, I mean, it's pointless to speculate, but maybe a canon lawyer from Hungary is going to become the new pope because we need to restore order in the church because of the chaos the chaos that has resulted as a result of uh, the papacy of Pope Francis. Yeah, but what do you what do you think politically in the United States? I mean, you know, politics and religion. Uh, you know, you you think it would be an influence there with good people ruling. I mean, do you, do you see that ever happening with the people getting into politics? There's going to be a reaction. It's already started. Liz Cheney is not going to be in Congress anymore. Okay, that was that was a straw in the wind. You're already seeing it with uh, the what what the Supreme Court did was empower the states to start uh, exercising their own supervision over their own states. That because if they kept on going the Ruth Bader Ginsburg path, going down that path, it would have broken apart and there would have been civil war. So it's we're going neck and neck here. Are these policies? Is it going to bend? Is the Constitution? Is the United States going to bend? Or is it going to break? Is it going to reform? Is it going to go back, give power to the states? Is it going to allow the states to represent? Are, are, they, are we going to come back to a period where the people, the uh, congressmen, actually represent the people who put them in office? Are we going to be able to break the power of the Israel lobby over every election in the United States of America? Well, that that's uh, up to the way people act. But I'm saying right now that 
abortion was a crucial way of imposing Jewish hegemony on the church, on the entire country. Right. And that's gone. And so maybe the whole thing will come down now. Maybe yeah. people will start, but only if we can connect the dots. Yeah. If you can't, if you can't see that there's a connection between uh, Merrick Garland and Anthony Blinken and the disastrous foreign policy and the attack on Donald Trump, you're not going to figure out anything. And the whole mainstream media are there to prevent you from connecting the dots. Yeah. Do you think you think Donald Trump is going to have a, a big sway here coming back or what? Nothing. Nothing put wind in his sales better than the attack of Merrick Garland on Mar-a-Lago. It yeah. simply resurrected him up to this point. I think that people were heading, thinking that DeSantis would be a better candidate. Trump has just uh, basically taken control of the Republican Party because of Merrick Garland, because of over he overplayed his hand. This is the way it always works with these people. They bring about a reaction because they don't understand limits. They don't understand limits. They don't understand the rule of law. All they understand is they have enemies. Every, why does everyone hate us? We're going to show these people that hate us that they can't push us around. We're going to, that's the type of attitude. They've got, they, it's just congenital to, to Jewish culture. Right. And the Holocaust is the epitome of that. And the Holocaust has to be uh, examined uh, in the light of reason uh, uh, so that we can deal with the problems it's creating. Right, right. Well, Michael, look, I, I think I think you covered that very well. Uh, I appreciate that you, you came on with me today. And I, I hope that to get your book out soon so we can get, uh, I, I, what I'll do is I'll, you know, I'll talk about your book another time when it comes out, because I'll get the book and then I can talk about your book to other, you know, people on Good. the channel and this and that. Good. That's what I do. And uh, we'll have you on another time after your book. How's that? That's great. That would and be great. We, we can talk about that. And we just go on for there. Hey, it's a fight. There's no doubt about it. Okay, we're trying to do our best to expose the the evil things that are going around. It's not easy. And I give you credit. Uh, you're the only man that I know um, that has a following that's getting the message out more than anybody I saw. That's why I wanted to talk to you. And you're doing a great job. And I, I really appreciate you coming on today. So I'll be in touch with you. You know, you know, once you get things squared away with that, and we'll just go from there. How's that? That's great. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Okay, thanks for being here, and we'll talk to you again, okay? Okay, thanks, Jim. All right, bye now.